Good morning, everybody. I know some of y'all have on jackets, and y'all seem like y'all are kind of a little chilly. Others are fanning. If you think it's cold here, Friday morning when I left at Gallup, New Mexico, it was six degrees and negative two wind chill. That's not fit for a man or beast. That's cold, Pastor Corey. Yeah, you sure would be cool with it. I did. I'm very impressed. Very impressed. Only a youth guy. Only a youth guy. Actually, I think that was the kids part, the junior high. and, and That was the associate pastor part. Okay. Well, thank you for your prayers this week as I have gone back to um, be with my dad for his sister's funeral. I appreciate that. That was a, uh, a wonderful opportunity to minister to my family and a very long ride. Um, each way, but it's good to be home. So this morning, I want to talk to you about a group of people that, you know, we've been for the last uh, several months, 10 months now, looking at different people groups and talking about things that are characteristic of them. And I want to talk to you about a group of people that you know real well. It's a group of people that you should have a, a very intimate familiarity with, and in spite of how well we think we know this group, it's really a group that we probably don't know nearly as well as we think we do. And the group that I want to talk to you about this morning is called the church. When we think of the church, we think of the people that are very much like us, that we associate with, the people that we have something in common with. And that, by definition, is what a people group is. Oftentimes, we think of people groups in terms of racial affiliations or in terms of ethnicities or backgrounds of, of different types, age related or even employment related. But there's an affinity related people group idea as well. And that's people that have something in common that would bring them together that normally would not be together, would normally not be in one place. And that is the church. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about what the church looks like today. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but the church today is not what the church was 40 years ago. Um, it's completely different. Its makeup is different. And the world around us looks at us differently. In the year 2016, one of the studies that I looked at, it said that in the United States, those who self-identify as Christian represent 73.7% of the population. Now that seems like a big number, doesn't it? Three out of every four people self-identify as Christian. When we define what that term means, that means that they're not something besides Christian. They don't consider themselves someone who is uh, Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Mormon, although they've even lumped Mormon into this particular study as part of Christianity. 48.9% in that same study, identify themselves as Protestants. Okay, 48.9%. This is a little side note that you may not be aware of. This study includes Baptists in that, but I don't believe Baptists really fit in the Protestant movement. If you look at the Baptist history, you'll find something a little different than that. 23% identify as Catholics, and 1.8% identify as Mormon. 18.2% of the population in 2016 in this study said that they have no religious affiliation at all. One out of five, roughly. 
Generation Z, which is the generation that my children belong to, much to Amelia's chagrin, is actually the least religious generation in our history. About one-third of them have no religion as what they adhere to. That's almost the same proportion as millennials, by the way. But when you compare that to Gen X's, which is my generation, maybe, 23%, baby boomers, 17%, and the silent generation, 11%. And so what you see happening across America is the church is becoming less prevalently noticeable. It's less obvious where the church is. And that's happening more and more in proportion to age. Now, you wouldn't know this by looking around our church, but most churches are getting old. See, I surprised you. In the years that Barn has been tracking young Christians' engagement with their faith, the retention of young people has gotten worse every study. In 2011, 59% of young Americans who grew up Christian had stopped attending their churches. 59%. A little less than a decade later, that number is now 64%. So I said we were going to be talking about the church, but in talking about the church, we have to talk about who the church isn't, obviously. The church at this point in America is an old, very similarly looking in racial makeup, in lifestyle choices. The church in America today really looks a lot like Daybreak Baptist Church. In California, 35% of our, of our state identifies as a conservative evangelical, I'm sorry, 35% of those who call themselves Christians identify as conservative evangelical Christians. I want to define that term. That means someone who finds the source of their authority to be the Word of God and who believes that Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation. Only 35% of those who call themselves Christians say that is who they are. So then if you take that number, you take that same 73% of the population from the first study, and you say that among those who call themselves Christians, only 35% say the Bible is their authority and Jesus is the only way for salvation, you find that that number becomes very, very small. California's population is estimated to be 39 million people. By most researchers' estimation, the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ on the basis of faith and receive salvation by his grace, the true church only makes up, on the high end, about 6 million of that 39 million. Now, we can think of those numbers and think, man, what a terrible reality. Or we can stop and think of those numbers in the terms of, in the state of California, there are six million people who are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
whose sins are forgiven and whose eternity is secured, not by their works, but by the grace of God shown on the Calvary. We could sit back and think how terrible it is that there's 33 million people in California that don't know Jesus Christ, and that is a terrible reality. But we can also sit back and we can think there are 6 million of us. So if we all tell five people, just five people, they'll all hear the truth. And so when we stop and we think about who the church is, the church is the army of Christ. The church is the blood-bought, adopted, spirit-filled, God-ordained vehicle to share the gospel with the world around us. So who is the church at daybreak? The church at daybreak are those who choose to embrace the call. Not only to salvation, but to bringing the gospel to our community. And as your pastor, having to miss Thursday night's activities here for our trunk retreat, and hearing the gospel kingdom impact that you had, and I did not even have to be involved, blessed my heart. So, when we think about the people group of the church, I believe that we have exactly who God needs for such a time as this to accomplish what he has for us. And so we put our hands to the plow. Amen? Father God, how we need you. How we need you in every moment of our lives. Lord, we're not able to even stand without you. Lord, as we've sung this morning, when we stand on you and your promises, we cannot fall. And so, Father, help us to be ever mindful of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One reality of making a cross-country trip as quickly as I did is you get to be exposed to a lot of different, different allergens in a short period of time. Um, and I understand that it was pretty bad here with the wind. And so maybe I was, I was blessed in that regard, but um, <clears throat> I have cough drop in my mouth. I'm going to do my best to not slobber all over myself while I'm up here, but... The, uh, the reality is, if I don't, I'm probably not going to make it through this message, so that's okay. We're talking about core values for the Christian life, things that we really need to focus on, things that we need to have as our own. Well, and I want to remind the kids um, to make sure that you're doing your handouts today. And to help you remember that, we actually have a drawing today. So let's see, who can I pick on today? Who could be, I'm going to get Miss. Would you reach down in there and grab one? All right, let's see. It's Josh Goins. And so Josh isn't here today, but we'll make sure we get this to him next week. I'll put his gift card, and make sure you fill yours out and turn them in 
So we can put you in the drawing for next month. <clears throat> if we think about our core values, we think about things that are of, of really significant importance to us. Things that, if these aren't present, we kind of lose our way. We, we've lost our grounding. We've lost our foundation. We've lost kind of that, that even keel that we can sometimes need in our lives. These core values serve as anchor points as well, so that when we have moments of insecurity, we can go back to them and we can cling on them, cling to them. We can think about how holy God is and how we face a world that seems to be so harsh and so difficult to function in, where people are continually bickering with one another and fussing over everything and and we're so divided. We feel that and we feel how, how, how empty all of that feels when we think about the holiness of God and how he's so above that. That gives us that comfort in our hearts. And when we pursue holiness in our lives, it gives us something to not only push away from, but something to cling to. And when we think about grace and we think about how in our lives... We have been the recipients of grace because of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ as believers. We have been given the opportunity to live forever with Him in, in eternity. We've been given the reality, as we sang a, a moment ago, we're free. Guys, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Man, that ought to just absolutely just... I mean, that, that should have been like me telling you that we just won the Super Bowl. Uh, you think about that. All that stuff that you know is true about you, God has forgotten. It's covered by the blood. To be remembered no more. That's grace. That's a, a beautiful gift of God. That's God saying, in spite of Pastor Mitch and who he is, I'm going to love him. I'm, gonna, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for him. And that gives us a touchstone that when we feel like, man, the world around us is falling apart and we don't have anything we can cling to that feels solid and dependable, we know that the grace of God never fails. We can lean on that. We can rest in that. Core values. These things are things that aren't just accidental. When you look at the picture of these trees that Pastor Corey, when he did this graphic, didn't he do a good job? Uh, when you look at these trees... In South Louisiana, you see cypress trees like this everywhere. And they'll grow right in the middle of the water. And what's true about those trees is that their roots go really wide. And those roots provide the stability for everything that happens above ground. And that's what core values do for us. Everything that comes out of our lives comes and flows through that root, that basis, that foundation upon which everything else must be built. So we're going to look today at a third of our core values, and that is a core value of mercy. We've talked about holiness. We've talked about grace. Today we're going to be talking about mercy. Mercy, a gift from God. Now, what is, mercy, what is mercy? Let's define it because that's an important thing. And then we're going to go into our text. What is mercy? When we think of mercy, I would encourage you to think of mercy as a 
companion to the idea of grace. Mercy and grace are really two sides of the same coin. They're all part of the same gift of God at the same time. Grace, we said last week, was getting that which we're unworthy of. Well, mercy would be not getting that which we are worthy of. You all know that moment when your child has done something wrong. And you know it, and they know it. And the consequences are the only thing hanging in the balance. And you have to decide in that moment as a parent how you're going to handle it. And every once in a while, you decide rather than giving them what they really ought to get, you show mercy. And you don't wear them out or take away their phone or send them to their room. You can't send them to their room anymore, especially teenagers. That's where they want to be is in their room. (laughs) Take away one of our greatest tools. Mercy then is about maintaining gracious attitudes and actions towards others in spite of their unworthiness. God stayed gracious towards us in spite of our unworthiness. And he gave us something that we did not deserve in place of what we did deserve. So what did we deserve? We deserved eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is death. We deserved punishment. We deserved to spend all of eternity separated from the one who we said, by our actions, we don't want to do what you want us to do. We deserve that. But as believers in Jesus Christ, those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, something is different. Salvation comes in that moment of surrender, and in that moment of surrender, God gives us something we could have never asked for or never known we needed. Had he not revealed it, he gives us grace that purchases our forgiveness, and he cancels the debt that was rightfully ours. Mercy defined. Now, there's a difference between feeling mercy and showing mercy. And a lot of us feel merciful. We feel mercy. We see someone. and The Bible describes it with a lot of different words. Mercy is one of the hardest words to define in all of the Bible because Especially in the Hebrew, there's about eight or nine different words that are commonly used to communicate the same basic thought with some variations to it. And so you have to look at all of them. But basically, it's, it's that, that feeling deep within you that you know how terrible it must be for that person to be encountering the thing that they're encountering and how devastating the impact of their reality is upon their moment and their future. It's like when you see your kid and you've told them, don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. And then finally, they decide to do what? Touch the stove. And when you see them in that moment and they're reaching out, you know that the reality is they're about to encounter a level of pain that they did not expect as a direct result of their own choice. And it hurts you. If it doesn't hurt you, then you need some psychological counseling. 
It stirs something within you. The, the Bible talks about it in terms of it stirring the, in the bowels of people. The, you know how you, that feeling you get in your stomach? I, I can't watch the videos that sometimes they put online now that somebody's, fall, you know, the clips of people falling and, and that. I, I hurt. Man, as I see them falling, I can feel it in my, I'm, oh. But there's a difference in feeling merciful and acting mercifully. And I think that's the, common, or the key point that we need to understand this morning as we look at our passage in a minute and as we think of this idea of mercy as a core value. Our main passage is in Luke, but I want to share with you a scripture real quick <coughs> from the book of James. So James says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Amen. That really is what it boils down to. As I was making this trip and I saw people all along the way that were hurting, they were, they, they, let me tell you, if you want to see the hurting part of humanity, take a road trip and stop at truck stops. I'm serious, they're everywhere. People are there, they're hurting they're, they're, they're people that don't know how to get to the next spot in life. They're people that are, that are searching for answers in drugs and alcohol and prostitution and everything. They're hurting people. And if you see that and you just walk on by, sure, you have felt mercy, but you haven't acted mercifully. And I want to talk to us this morning specifically about the difference between the two and how if mercy is really a core value of ours how we have to not only think these things, but we have to act on them. Otherwise, what use is it? What use is our faith if it doesn't impact the world around us? I would say it's of no use. It's completely worthless. So let's look at Luke chapter 10. <coughs> Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin reading this morning in verse 30. When you get there, would you stand if you're able as we read from God's Word? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him. They beat him. And went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on the journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. That word is also translated in other places, mercy. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds. And pouring oil and wine on them, he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Fair question, Jesus asks. 
not one they're ready for. They answered him in verse 37. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Let's pray. Father, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Father, help us to embrace the truth of your word and to challenge one another to walk in its light. Lord, help us that our foundation not be our self-righteousness, but our surrender. May you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> I'm sorry, guys. I knew I was going to be like this when I started talking. So as we've done in each of these core values, we're going to look at the three main questions. The first one that we're going to look at today is what does mercy produce in the life of a believer? What does it look like when mercy becomes something more than something we talk about and intellectually assent to and becomes something that we live our lives based upon? That we live our lives um, intentionally, as we talked about in Sunday School, Miss Robin, intentionally as we live our lives, as we walk, Brother Willie, as we've been talking about in Ephesians, as we walk in our day-to-day -day life, what does mercy really look like? What does it produce in the life of of a believer. What should our lives demonstrate to the world around us? The first thing it should show is a self-giving faith. When you look at this passage that we just read, you see that this man has gone along the road, and Taylor and I and Stephen this year as we went to Israel had a chance to see some of these places, and you see these roads, <laughs> such as they were, for people to walk along. It's very easy to see how someone could find themselves in trouble very quickly. And so here's a guy, he's making his journey and as he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he finds himself in real problems. He fell among robbers. And they stripped him, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. He was in a bad spot. And in that very, very bad spot, along the way comes the priest. Now the priest is the representative for the people between them and God. He's the one that's his responsibility to go to God on behalf of the people and, and offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people and to fulfill the religious rituals on behalf of the people to God. He is the one that they, he knows the teachings of Scripture. And when he sees this man, he walks past him. Now, interestingly, Scripture doesn't tell us in depth, what happened in his heart, it, it doesn't tell us, well, that, well, the priest, when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. It doesn't say that. But if you saw someone whose life was destroyed, who was hanging on by the threads, who'd been beaten and stripped naked and left to the side of the road to die, and it didn't impact you, what does that say about you? We don't know what happened on the inside. Maybe he felt compassion towards this man. Maybe he felt mercy. But whatever he felt did not compel him to action. He walked right on by. As James said, what use is that? Then comes a Levite. Levite is a, a scholar in the law, someone who, who understands the law. He's, he's part of that tribe of Levi. And he's, he's very much versed in the word of God. He, he's a, a, a looked upon 
leader of his culture and of his society. He's someone that everybody thinks highly of. And he sees this man. He's beaten. He's stripped naked. He's laying on the side of the road. He's, he's about to die. And again, we don't see anything in Scripture that indicates his heart. We don't know whether the man thought, oh, how terrible. What a pity. We also don't know if maybe he thought, well, that's what he gets for going that way. What we do know is that he walked right by. He did nothing about it. Then in the story that Jesus is telling, we come to the unlikely hero, a Samaritan. Someone who is definitely not the religious leader of the culture. He's definitely not a pillar of society. He's not someone who's looked highly upon. He's not even someone who is accepted within the religious circles as being a legitimate heir of the kingdom. And when he sees him, he's moved with compassion. The Bible does say that for this man, he felt that compassion, that stirring deep within, that holy discontent is what I would call it. An unwillingness to allow the status quo to remain the status quo. He could not ignore the reality of the people hurting there on the road. He could not pass by. And so what did he do? The scripture says it very clear. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You see, a very self-giving faith is produced in the heart of someone who has mercy as a core value of their life. It's a self-giving. All of these things that you see in this verse, here in verse um, 34, the bandages, the oil, the wine, the beast, and the inn all came from the possessions of of the one man. He gave what was his own to someone who had not for their need. Now, we don't know anything about this Samaritan, will he? He might have been very wealthy. He might have been a man of incredible value and incredible wealth. He might have been a man that had mansions back where we don't know. He also might have been a man that had one donkey, that had one bottle of wine, that had one little bit of bandages. And one little bit of oil, that might have been all he had. But what we do know is that he gave what he had to impact the life of someone who needed someone to show mercy. It's a self-giving faith. It's a faith that changes our want-tos, our have-tos rather, to want-tos, Brother Willie. I got a whole sermon on that, by the way. (laughs) Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul says, give it all to him. Let him be the king of your life. Present whatever it is you have as an offering. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning, a fragrant aroma rising to him. Why? Because that's a reasonable thing to do. It's acceptable to God. It's, it's our spiritual service of worship. It's giving all that we are. Why? Because of the mercies of God who gave it all to us. 
And so a self-giving faith is produced when you have core value of mercy as a central part of who you are. Secondly, you also have a merciful attitude towards others. Earlier in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, it says, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Now, how many of you like to get what you have coming? You do on payday, don't you? How many of you go to work and, and not expect to get your check? Any of you ever gone to work and thought, eh, I'm going to go work, they pay me, they don't pay me, no big deal. No. Our expectation is, if we earn it, we deserve it. Well, the wages of sin, the wages, that which we've earned, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so, as we have been the recipients of mercy, then we have a merciful attitude. When we think about things, we don't think about them in terms of, what's this going to cost me? We're going to think about the things in the terms of, I am so glad God already provided And when we do something for someone else, it's not about, oh, well, that means I have to do without. It's about, I can't believe that God already opened the door for me to be able to be there to be a blessing to someone else. How in the world does that happen? I'm going not, hopefully not embarrass you too much, Miss Lois, but I, I love you to death. You're such an inspiration to me. You're an encouragement to me. Miss Lois gets in her car and she picks up people and brings them places when they need to go places. Just a wonderful, wonderful gift. She does. She was driving a car. Car was not terrible. It got her from A to Z. And God gave her a new car. Not brand new, unfortunately, huh? But it's exactly what she needed. It made it easier to do the job. Because she made what she had available to God. God used her and gave her what she needed for the next step in that same ministry. Isn't that amazing how that works? It's amazing how when our merciful Father is merciful to us and then we share that with others, it's like we almost become a conduit of blessing. And we get to the place where we're like, if I get to show mercy, then I, I get more mercy to show more mercy. And if I get more mercy, I can show more. And it builds on it. It's like a snowball. And all of a sudden, being merciful becomes something we desire and not something we endure. You see, God doesn't sit in heaven and say, well, I guess i got to be merciful. No, God is merciful because God is merciful. Amen. It's because that's who He is. It's what's true about Him. And when it is true about us, we will show mercy. We'll have a merciful attitude. It also brings a forgiving attitude towards others. <laughs> when you realize what you've been given and what you deserve... Those of us who've been forgiven much. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I know the things I've done. I know the thoughts I've had. I know the words I've said. I know the positions I've taken. I know the attitudes that I, I know how sometimes I can be hard to live with. Don't say anything to you. <laughs> I know this. And if that's true about me, then why in the world would I be in any way reluctant to forgive others when they've sinned against me? You see, it's part of the same coin. 
the grace that we've been given instead of the punishment that we deserve, create that coin of forgiveness. Grace on one side, mercy on the other, but the currency combined means that we have been forgiven. And if we've been forgiven, then we must show grace and mercy to others in the exact same way. A forgiving attitude towards others is part of a merciful reality in our lives. Be careful here, James chapter 2, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And if you are not able to show mercy and be gracious and, and love people and forgive other people, you better look in your heart and ask yourself the question, am I truly forgiven? Am I truly a child of God? Is that characteristic of who we are? What does gracie, uh, mercy um, produce in our lives? It produces these things, but what does it demand? What does mercy demand? Well, the first thing that mercy demands in the life of believer is that it demands that we persevere. Look at what it says there in that passage. Verse 33, the Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him, he bandaged up his wounds, he poured oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast, he took him to an inn, he took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him some more. He kept on and 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 kept on. And When do you stop? You stop when God stops. How often should I forgive my brother? 70 times 7? Just make a deal with you. As long as you still want God to forgive you, you keep forgiving people. As long as you still want to receive God's mercy, you keep showing mercy. As long as you still want to be a recipient of God's grace, you keep showing grace. As long as you want to show other people the holiness of God, keep displaying holiness in your life. You don't ever quit. A merciful life looks at the world around us and realizes that the only difference between me and that person is Jesus Christ and His grace. There but for the grace of God go I. Let me tell you this week, as I, as I went through this situation with my family and I saw lives, some of whom have no hope outside of Christ. I realize that if God hadn't 33 years ago intervened in my life, today my reality and my children's reality would be the same as many of their realities. It is not because I deserved anything. It is not because of anything that's mine. And so because of that, I can keep giving that same mercy to others because as long as I am receiving it, I should give it. He kept on. He kept on. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We keep pushing for it. We keep showing mercy. We keep demonstrating it. Why? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Demand, mercy demands that we persevere. It demands that we demonstrate mercy. We have to show people mercy. The, the priest and the Levite, they walked right on by. They might have felt it. I don't want to condemn their hearts to say they were so hard-hearted they weren't even met, moved by the guy. But in Jesus' parable here, they didn't act. And what use is it if you don't act is what James says. What use is it if, if you just think, oh, I feel so sorry for them. As we say down south, oh, bless their heart. <laughs> Empty words. 
vain words. Mocking words. What are you doing to demonstrate mercy? To show others that what Christ has done in you mattered to you enough that you need to show them how he can do it in their lives. Our harvest festival is trunk or treat party thing this week. Man, all the candy that was given away, all the, ri- all the games, all the bounce houses, all the music, all the cupcakes and the cupcakes and the cupcakes and the cupcakes. Man, all that's great. Unless nothing happens for another year. That doesn't demonstrate mercy. That appeases our conscience. The Samaritan could have walked up and said, Oh, you look like that. Oh, man, that hurts. Here, let me give you a bandage. And kept right on going. The demonstration of mercy requires that whatever the moment demands, we rise to the occasion. And we share from the hearts that God has given us a willingness to love them to wherever they need to be. Why? Because mercy communicates something about the gospel. It tells the world something about what's true in us. It helps them to see that that they don't have to be where they are. That what's true of their reality does not have to be true of their future. That what they've experienced to this point in life doesn't have to define the rest of their lives. That their existence on this earth does not have to uh, indicate where they're going to spend eternity. That God can intervene, that God wants to intervene, that God has intervened. That he has sent Jesus. That he has offered hope. That there is forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. That there is life That yeah, there's 33 million people in California that don't claim to know Jesus Christ like you and I would understand it is. That just means that there's 33 million people that we can demonstrate that mercy towards. That just means that it ought to be easy. Listen, some of y'all are probably not going to get this real easy, but in the South, one of the things we like to do is hunt. We'll go out there and we find us a place and we prepared and some of them, sometimes people spend thousands of dollars to kill that one deer that summer. That's the most expensive meat you can get, I promise you. And they sit there on the deer stand and they wait and they wait and they wait and they wonder, are they ever going to see a deer? Those who need to know Jesus are all around us. We don't have to wait and wonder if we're going to see them. We don't have to prepare all this stuff to make it possible to encounter someone who doesn't know Christ. We just have to open our eyes as we're walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We just have to see them, and when we see them, we have to act upon it. And the gospel, what we can learn about the gospel through mercy is that even this Samaritan, this, this half-breed, this one that was not acceptable in any way, this one that nobody wanted anything to do with, he wasn't, he wasn't welcome with the Jewish community, he wasn't welcome with the Gentile community, he was someone who was off, pushed off all to himself. This hero of the story was willing to give of himself because he 
chose to be merciful. That must be who we are as believers. So, who in your life needs your mercy? Maybe it's that kid sits across from you in class, Karis. Maybe it's your coworker. Maybe it's your in-law. Maybe it's that nosy neighbor. So y'all have that one too, don't you? Maybe it's the person with 37 items in the 20 items or less checkout line. Maybe it's the person that smells funny. Maybe it's the person that wears something on their head. Maybe it's the person that took advantage of you. Maybe it's the person that you said you could never forgive. Which of these three, Jesus said, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. This next verse, this next line, this next sentence is directly to you and I. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Go and do the same. And so that person that came to your mind when you thought, Lord, I don't know how. I don't know how to be merciful towards them. That's the person that God wants you to show mercy towards. And maybe you need to be at this altar this morning asking him to give you the strength to do that. To open up a door that you can. Maybe the way you've behaved in the past has been so rotten that they wouldn't even listen. Maybe you need to be at this altar and repent. And ask God to make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. Maybe you've never felt mercy. Maybe all you've ever felt is judged. All you've ever felt is left alone and ignored and empty. You don't know what it's like to know that there's hope and that there's peace to be found in Jesus Christ. You don't know what it's like to know that no matter what it is that you're going through, you don't have to face it alone. And if that's you this morning, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you love to share with you in God's word how that does not have to be your reality. That there is a God who is merciful. And I can tell you that because he was merciful to me. Lord, this morning, would you take these feeble words 
Would you take this humble moment, God? And would you prepare us to be the people that you desire that we would be? Lord, if there's one here that does not have the hope of salvation in you, that they have experienced in you, if there's one here this morning that doesn't know what it means to be forgiven and accepted, to be made whole in you, God, would you call them to yourself this morning? Would you give them the strength and the courage they need to, to call out to you, to seek you out? to respond even in this invitation. And for your children here, God, the, those of us who have struggled being merciful, help us to go and do like this man did in the story. Otherwise, Father, what use is it? In Jesus' name, amen.